Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... The only thing we have to film is film itself. Hi everyone. Welcome to Working Title, the podcast where we podcast. This week, we're watching the movie Big Fish. Sorry, I'm going to work it out. The podcast where we podcast a podcast. The podcast where we podcast about podcasts. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> you want to do this job, Shane? You can do this job. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm Jack, and I podcast. We watched a movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Give me a second. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Working Title. Intro, intro, intro. This week, we watched Big Fish, which is a Tim Burton movie from 2003, kind of a fantasy drama film, kind of surrounding uh, a man and his son reconciling, surprisingly less fishing than I would have expected, but still a pretty good movie. Before we talk about the movie, let's introduce ourselves. June, do you want to tell us who you are? Yeah, hi, my name's June, and uh, I uh, legitimately believe that I am Spartacus. <laughs> Hold on a second. I am Spartacus. Well, the, I am Spartacus. My name's Jack, and I'm Spartacus. Yeah, my name's Shane, and I am also Spartacus. Mike? Oh, is that my turn? I thought I was already Spartacus. <laughs> 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 All right, anyway. So. <laughs> All right, now, before we, uh, before we dive too far into this, Mike, do you want to give us kind of the, the general overview of what this movie's about besides Big Fish? I will give you the general overview of what this movie is about besides Big Fish. So this is kind of a movie about a man and his son trying to reconcile and a little bit about kind of storytelling uh, as a general idea. Kind of a little abstract movie, and it's kind of presented in two parallel plots. One in the present day, and then a bunch of vignettes representing stories. Um, before we dive into the, the plot and talk about the details of what happened in this movie, what did y'all think of this one? I'm just going to say that if you didn't cry... During this movie, you're a heartless person, and you're also a liar. This movie is amazing, and um, really, it's Tim Burton's Forrest Gump. If I'm gonna really just sum it up, doesn't mean I, it's bad by any means. But I literally wrote that exact line in my notes. <laughs> it, it almost it, is beat it for really beat is. the same movie. You know, I didn't think of that, but that's pretty true. Well, I'll echo that. It's it's a good movie. It's it's a great movie, um, definitely deserving of a spot somewhere in the top 250, I think. For, for what I thought about this movie, going back to uh, episode one, a callback to a statement I made, this is definitely one of the five that goes before the killing. That being said, I honestly feel that I cannot give this movie the proper justice. It is it is too good. It's definitely um, definitely one of my favorite movies that I've seen. I think the only thing I can say up front, uh, without spoiling the plot, that I thought was an issue is that given it's a Tim Burton movie, conspicuously missing Johnny Depp. But with that said, why don't we dive into the plot? Mike, do you want to start telling us about what happens in this movie? Sure. So in the beginning of this movie, it starts with uh, a story <laughs> that... Bobby. <clears throat> so the movie begins with a combination of tall tales and modern events uh, simultaneously taking place throughout the movie. Uh, the story really is about Edward Bloom and Will Bloom, who have a falling out due to Edward's charismatic ability to tell these fantastical stories that everybody is enticed by. And Will is Edward's son. Yeah, definitely. And Will kind of feels the shadow of being the son of such a uh, charismatic person. Uh, throughout the beginning of the movie, we go into Edward having this, you know, these stories of his childhood involving witches and giants and how he moves from the small town out into the real world and finds his way to an eventual town that is supposed to be his ending. And, and as I was saying, these are fantastical stories. So throughout these stories, we see some uh, 
you know, some unbelievable events occur, but definitely it's, it's enjoyable to watch. And you can see why Will really feels like he's kind of cheated by his father. He, he goes into saying that he never really felt like he knew his father. He only heard lies. Um, but there are scenes that you can tell that Will has this connection with his father that he's, he's going to try to make up for. And the reason why he's trying to make up for it is he finds out that Edward Bloom is dying of cancer and returns home. And that's where the story kind of kicks off and goes into uh, the history of his father as a journalist. He tries to discover who his father actually really was. Um, so that's really where we're up to at the very beginning. And if we want to go into the stories, I'd like to talk about them in, in detail. Yeah, I think we've got a few stories in there that we can kind of chat about as we go through. Um, yeah, great, great synopsis, Mike, um, kind of taking us through the first section of the movie. Um, June, what were your thoughts as we uh, kind of open up the movie? Um, so first of all, I do not believe that Ewan McGregor ages into Albert Finney. Yeah, good point. <laughs> do you remember the the days when you had to cast a different actor to play a young character? Can't just DH them. <laughs> On that note, though, for for Ewan McGregor, I thought his uh, I I did believe that his accent was quite uh, believable. See, I, I would make a counterpoint to that. I believe that his accent at first was quite unbelievable. And a little over the top, but as the movie progressed, it did grow on you, as I will say. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say to that. Um, it was like the more you heard it, like the more you accepted it, because at first it felt a little off-putting. Yeah, I think that's because we like know how Ewan McGregor talks. Yeah, he's he's probably more famous for other roles than this movie, uh, in which he did not talk like a Auburn grad. I will say, though, that the, the movie overall is a very accurate documentary of life in Alabama. <laughs> that is what I've heard. There are lots of weird little towns that you can end up in where, uh, by fantastical, magical laws, you are not allowed to leave. And they um, all have witches. Yeah, so I think maybe one, um, if we want to talk about one of the stories that we kind of open up with that I think really is important for both, you know, like setting the context of the later stories and bookending the movie. It's that story about the witch um, that he encounters as a child. Mike, do you want to tell us what happens in that one? So we uh, we see Edward as a, as a young boy. He's, I don't know, maybe a preteen, teenager. Um, and he's going through a swamp with some friends, uh, which interestingly enough, I don't know if you guys recognized the little girl in that scene. Yes, I did. It caused me to have to spend some money because I was watching it with my fiance who started yelling at me that she saw Miley Cyrus. And I was like, what are you talking about? So I paused it. We tried to go back. I'm going to say that I spent zero money on it originally because I found a free version of it uh, through IMBD's website, actually. So I had to watch some ads. So every single time I rewinded this video, I had to watch this ad again and again. And eventually it started <laughs> skipping around. It kicked me to the middle of the movie for some reason. So I had to actually rent the movie to, in order to stop this from happening. And sure <laughs> enough, Miley Cyrus is in this movie. No shit. Yeah, I, I discovered entirely by accident. I was on Amazon Prime. I hit the thing to see the time I was at, and it said, Miley Cyrus is in this scene. And holy shit, she was. But anyway, so at the end of this scene, uh, Edward meets this witch with these, these friends that he has in this small town. And the myth is that if you look into the witch's eye, you can see the way you die. And uh, the witch comes out, scares his friends away. They see the way that they're going to die, and it horrifies them. Uh, but Edward, being a charismatic person that he is, Asks the witch to see his future. He decides that he wants to know because it would, you know, it's better off to know than to not know. Because if you know, nothing else is gonna, nothing else is gonna kill you. So he ends up seeing the way he's gonna die. We don't see this yet, but it just it happens in the scene that we now know that he believes he knows how he is going to die. Yeah, this is kind of a, his personal secret for the movie, and he also kind of references it a lot. It kind of gives him a bit of confidence. It seems. Um, I think the the story of him kind of growing up quickly and uh, outgrowing the town happens right after this. Mike, do you want to take us from that point where he's kind of like grown uh, super fast into a grown ass man in high school, and uh, where that where that goes from there? I think it's weird that Helen Bonnercard is the only person in this movie that can actually uh, play an old person, a young person, and a witch. Everybody else has second characters for the old version and young version of themselves. <laughs> No, well played. It's a good observation, yeah. So Edward Bloom 
uh, as he's outgrowing this town, is put into a scenario where the town is being uh, molested by a giant who is coming in and eating their livestock. And he decides that he's going to volunteer to go be the savior of the town and meet the giant and convince him to leave. Uh, the way he does this is he tells the giant that he will leave with him. Uh, so the two of them leave the town and they go to the big city. And at this point, Edward decides to take the long route through a scary looking woods that a uh, author or poet of their city uh, once was, was fabled to have taken himself and uh, goes down this path where he gets stuck in a bog, goes through some marshes, goes through some, some spider webs and finds the city of Spectre, uh, which is, it's the perfect world, essentially. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a version of almost death, like he's gone to heaven. And uh, while he's in this town, he meets a little girl named Jenny who tries to keep him there. And it's kind of a spooky town. They make him feel like he's supposed to be there. They have like a list and they say he's early. And uh, he eventually decides that he can't stay there and he has to go back because he's not done living his ambition. Right. And Spectre is a Spectre is probably the point, I think, where this movie really, really starts to hit its stride. Um, it's kind of ominous, but it's kind of vague. Of course, this is part of uh, Ed's story, so it's hard to tell what's what's true and what's false about it, if anything is true. But I thought there were a lot of things that were done just really, really well, uh, whether it's um, kind of some of the foreshadowing. They, uh, they kind of take you over this uh, power line with a lot of shoes thrown over it as we kind of do the intro shot into the town. And then lots of scenes of people without shoes and Ed being the only one with shoes and his shoes getting stolen to kind of suggest he's trapped. I thought that was just a lot of clever stuff there. What do you guys think of uh, this kind of section from uh, growing up and in through Spectre? So the, the metaphors in this movie are on point. Uh, when he reads the encyclopedias and how he's outgrowing uh, the town. Um, so we kind of see the, the I forget what, uh, what's the name of the town that he's grew up in? Uh, Ashton, yeah, Ashford, Ashton, Ash, whatever is like is like his little fishbowl, right? So mm-hmm. you know, he kind of has to leave. What uh, catalyzes all of this? He decides to leave the town with the giant, and uh, there's like a big parade for him as he leaves, and you know everybody says goodbye, and uh, everyone gives him a little bit of you know life advice as he's walking down the street, and he said the most important. Uh, person he wanted to hear from was the witch and uh i just thought it was funny that there's they have a town witch and everyone's just cool with it <laughs> well as he says earlier all towns of a certain size have a witch that's true <laughs> which means yeah. how many witches does new york have it's like do you run into the witch at the grocery store <laughs> like you know hey how are the cats like i also want to point out that during like the little montage of him like winning everything as he's growing up there is he makes this like he wins the science fair by using the flubber machine from the beginning like that almost reminded me of shot for shot the opening of flubber and then he beats the guy who made a volcano (laughs) (laughs) Uh, these two movies are in the same universe (laughs) yeah this movie definitely influenced a lot of movies later on to include flubber Yeah, yeah, Flubber could not have happened without this movie. Though I think, I mean, as you describe these things, the thing that I'm really taking away is that this movie also just really nailed the feel of, like, the vibes of a small town. And it was really good about kind of just, like, really making you feel like you are in the same, you know, environment or scenario, whatever story Edward is talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he goes... With the giant, and like Mike was saying, he you know he takes a different path to end up in this town. So I want to I want to push forward a little bit uh, before we get into Spectre, which was like the biggest part of the first part of this movie. He does his thing, Inspector. Eventually, has to leave, and uh, he meets back up with the giant. And like that giant was waiting there on the side of the road for like you know thirteen hours. <laughs> I feel like it was actually longer than that. You know, it's, well, I mean, granted, it's one of those stories, so who knows what's true, but he did arrive and leave the same day. He was there a night, because him and the poet are sitting by the lake. Oh, that's right. Oh, man, it could have been longer. But I do want to point out that 
this movie is a straight up who's who of celebrities. Yeah. And the poet who is uh the poet's name is Norther Winslow. He's definitely uh the inspiration is like Robert Frost or something with the whole two paths in the woods, whatever, right? Um, but played by Steve Buscemi. Is that how you say his name? Buscemi. Steve Buscemi, Buscemi yeah. yeah. Played by Steve Buscemi, who is will show up plenty of times. Um incredible actor. And there were several actors where I was like, holy shit, that's him? Yeah, like Ludon Wainwright the <laughs> third. Definitely A list here. Um so Ed eventually makes it into into this utopian town of Spectre, but uh, like you were saying, it's it it gives off that weird vibe how like everybody's happy and everybody's welcoming, but like you know secretly all those people have like human meat in their fridge. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think they even played the song from Deliverance in the beginning. They did. They did play dueling banjos. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say one thing about Spectre. Uh, they have that big scene where they're all dancing and they're all barefoot. And fun fact, actually, that was the inspiration for all the, the Hobbit dancing and singing and parties in Lord <laughs> of the Rings. It's <laughs> funny how all our movies really are like setting the stage for bigger movies to come. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Rings had the innovation of gluing hair to their feet, but otherwise it's, it's shot for shot. <laughs> so while we're on fun facts, uh, so I currently live in Alabama. And I found out that Spectre is a town, except it's not a town. It is a abandoned movie set from Big Fish. No oh, shit. So the movie set is still uh, standing here in the middle of Alabama. Oh, interesting. Well, that, that that's funny. I've been to Hobbiton in in New Zealand. You should go check out Spectre. I bet you it's exactly the same. They probably have a bus, a little bit of like a show that can go with it. You know, I would say it's better. The scenery in Alabama is like leagues above New Zealand's mountainscapes. <laughs> Yeah, Alabama's known for it. <laughs> Wait, so not only is this movie setting the stage for movies within movies, it's setting the stage for them post-production too. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the entire concept of Hobbiton as a tourist destination was actually inspired by Spectre. <laughs> <laughs> James Bond Spectre, not Big Fish Spectre, very confused. Well, actually, James Bond Spectre, uh, the original novel, was inspired by Big Fish, but the novel <laughs> Big Fish... <laughs> Yep. Um, so anyway, I kind of moving on from Spectre, Mike. Where 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 does the road take us next? All right. So after Spectre, um, Edward meets back up with Carl the Giant. I don't think we've said his name yet, but his name is Carl. And uh, they continue on to the the big city, which in the beginning of this movie is their first stop is a circus. At the circus, Carl is this monstrous man who ends up becoming you know stealing the show, and he gets a job working for the circus ringleader who is played by Danny DeVito. His name is Callaway and uh, his sidekick, Mr. Soggy Bottom and signs a contract to work for the circus. So we leave Carl and Edward sees through the crowd at the circus, uh, the love of his life who is uh, Sandra. Yeah, Sandra. So he sees Sandra through this crowd and he has this, he has this moment of freezing time because he's seen the love of his life. And this really kicks off the second half of the story about Edward trying to find the love of his life who leaves the circus. He doesn't catch up with her. And in order to figure out who she is, he has to work for Mr. Calloway uh, in order to earn once a month uh, knowledge about Sandra. So after three years of working for Calloway, he eventually finds out that Calloway is a werewolf. And this is where it gets a little bit convoluted, but through uh, some interactions with the werewolf, uh, earns the right to know who Sandra is. And uh, he then goes and finds her at her college uh, but unfortunately, she's engaged, and he then proceeds to try to win her over. And uh, at this point, we're going back to the main story, the real world, where Josephine, uh, Will's wife, is starting to really fall in love with Edward's stories. And it's starting to intrigue Will again to start to listen to the stories again. He's starting to hear them anew as if he was a kid again, because he's not directly listening to them, but he's seeing the enticement that his wife, Josephine, is getting and taking away from these stories. And this is where we start to get the shift of Will and Edward's relationship. With a circus, there is no better casting choice for a guy that runs a circus than Danny DeVito. <laughs> that was oh my God. spot on. And of course, he's, it's incredible. of course he's naked in the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, casting Danny DeVito as the circus master and his lawyer as a clown slash little person was the <laughs> pinnacle of comedy. 
It was the most Tim Burton thing I've ever seen, a circus run by Danny DeVito. In terms of uh, casting choices, too, so Sandra's fiancé is played by David Denman, who plays Pam's fiancé in The Office. Oh my god, that's right. That's where I recognize him from. When is this dude going to get the girl, man? (laughs) (laughs) And on that character, so so David Denman plays Don Price, who... uh, we see from other earlier stories of Ed Bloom growing up that he was kind of uh, the friend slash like rival, I guess. You know, Ed wins the science fair, and you see a shot of Don, you know, with his stupid volcano or whatever. The plant. He didn't even have the volcano. No, literally every scene is foreshadowing this. Yeah, so there's this montage. Um, there's this montage of scenes where Don is just beaten by Ed at things. And um, when he finds out that he's engaged to Sandra, he says something along the lines of, she's engaged to, like, the worst person ever. And, you know, like, what did Don do wrong? (laughs) Thank you. Screwing this guy over at every chance he can. Can we get, like, a justice for Don thing going here? Yeah, like, I want to see Don's story, you know? Little fish. (laughs) We saw how Don's story ended, and it was not pretty. (laughs) I disagree with you guys. So my fiance said the exact same thing. She's like, poor Don. It's like, you know what? Screw Don. Don has a shit attitude. He's always being butthurt and jealous. Like, nah, Don could be friends with people. He's just being an asshole. Like, Don sucks. Don literally lost his girl to a man who got daffodils from five different states, knew she was engaged and said, ah, I don't give a shit. Well, Don should have gotten daffodils. I'm just saying. <laughs> Step it up, Don. <laughs> Can I just point one thing out? So... Ed goes to the circus. He works not for money, but in, st- in exchange for facts and knowledge about Sandra. And no, these are not good facts. Uh, <laughs> Danny DeVito's character comes up to him and says, she likes music. And that's a month's worth of pay for this guy. And not only that, not only does he work for this, he works for three years, 36 months before he realizes this is a bad deal. <laughs> what the hell did Sandra see at him? I want to say one other thing without jumping too far ahead, but he does become a salesman later, and I don't understand how he has any kind of business acumen <laughs> having worked for 36 months for facts <laughs> like, she goes to college, or she likes music. <laughs> you know, all the little facts like compound, though, the, the stuff that Danny DeVito tells him, you know, he knows that she likes daffodils or, or whatever, but the way he uses like those facts... He's doing some, like, restraining order level shit to Sandra. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Like, he's so creepy. Like, it's one thing because, okay, we know he's the hero of the story and he's a nice guy and he's, you know, just like a country kid who's excited and doesn't know any better. But also, it's like, he walks up to the door, she says, well, I'm engaged, so sorry. And he walks 10 feet away and then shouts at the window, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> I don't give a shit. This is the classic, like, from the notebook, Ryan Gosling's like, I'll kill myself if you don't go on a date with me. And all the girls are like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> because it's Ewan McGregor saying this, everyone <laughs> looks past every creepy thing he says. But we have Steve Buscemi stand outside that door and say this. <laughs> it's a very different movie. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a romance for the ages, that's for sure. Um, and eventually he does win her over. You want to take us through that, Mike? Wait, wait, wait. Before we go on, there's a big plot point. Well, I don't even know if it's a big plot point, but the reason he gets out of his contract is because Danny DeVito is a werewolf. Oh, yeah. We can't, we cannot skip over the fact that Danny DeVito turned out to be a werewolf. <laughs> he plays fetch with him, and that's why Danny DeVito likes him. Bringing me to the biggest confusing point of the movie is Danny DeVito, after being a werewolf, is itching himself. And the foot comes up and he's itching his ear. Whose foot is that? <laughs> and I thought about the set and how this looks where da- naked Danny DeVito and some poor intern is just scratching his face with their foot. You know, I thought the same thing. Who got paid to get their foot muddy and then go and rub it on Danny DeVito's face? <laughs> now, I'm scanning IMDb to see if there's anyone listed as the foot. <laughs> But the fact that he just starts playing fetch with the werewolf Danny DeVito. Seconds after he got shot by the assistant. Oh, yeah. He has a name, Mr. Soggy Bottom. Uh, yeah, Mr. Soggy Bottom <laughs> tried to shoot. And Justice for Mr. Soggy Bottom. 
<laughs> love that scene. I love watching Mr. Soggy Bottom open up his big fat clown suit and have a gun with one silver bullet and puts it into the revolver and with one tear rolling down his eye, fucking caps Eva McGregor like in the <laughs> arm. Have that just ignored. Wasn't it Mr. Soggy Bottom that pulls out a contract for Carl and they go like, do you know what indentured servitude is? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oh man, so many funny moments. I really think, so this this is a good movie all the way through, but from Spectre on is really where it hits its stride. I would agree. For sure. All right, so we've kind of talked through the circus, through Danny DeVito's Harrier Adventures, and how Ed meets his soon-to-be wife. Mike, do you want to take us forward and where the tell us where the story goes from there? So after they get married, um, Edward gets a recruitment to the army and is drafted into the u.s army where he is sent uh to the korean war and he has to uh do a special mission in order to retrieve some documents from uh it's it's almost like there's a uh, a show going on for the troops and edward has to parachute in in his airborne unit to steal these special documents and and during this mission he ends up meeting uh some conjoined twins and they come up with a scheme to get a canoe and a boat and eventually make it to Miami to get back to Sandra. But while he's gone in the months that it takes for him to do this plan, Sandra is told by the U S army that he actually has been missing in combat and she assumes he is dead. And uh, that leads us into kind of a, a very dramatic uh, situation in the movie. So as far as plot movement goes, it's, it's not a lot, but as far as details of what actually happens in these scenes, <laughs> there's a lot going on. June, do you wanna do you wanna give us a little intro? What you're thinking here? Did you like know for sure that that was the Korean War? Absolutely not. But during the scene, we had a translation that came on the bottom of the screen that said "speaking Chinese," and at one point it said "speaking Korean." So I assumed it was the Korean War because I know China and Korea are a part of that. So that yeah. fed into my confusion. I was gonna say possibly feeding into your confusion on the plane. He is reading an English to Asian dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so on the plane, everybody jumps out, and then he waits, like, five seconds before he jumps. Obviously, being that he lands somewhere different than everybody else. So I don't know what that was all about. But then it cuts to, um, like Mike was saying, there's, like, a big theater, outdoor theater, and everybody's uh, kind of watching this show. And uh, there's a Chinese soldier who is a terrible ventriloquist, and I died laughing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a low-talking, you know, shitty ventriloquist, and I, I don't know why that scene was so funny, but they uh, they pull him off stage, and then it cuts to the Siamese twins. Nice little play, I guess. And then uh, he it cuts to a, another scene where there's like two North Koreans, and this is where I was very confused, because I speak Korean, and I could understand that scene, but did not understand any of the Chinese before that, so I I, I don't know what that had to add to the movie um i think it was just an extra layer of confusion you realize that the north koreans and the chinese fought together in the korean war i i understand that but why was that specific fact hit on like what did the film had have to lose by just saying everybody was chinese or everybody was north korean well the dictionary he was reading made no distinction they were switching from asian to korean to chinese <laughs> i think tim burton was trying to just tell the world that when it comes to asia it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Shane. <laughs> the bigger question is, did she, like, when, when he died, I assume she got paid life insurance. All right, Mike, before we dive too far into this, can you define for us what life insurance is? <laughs> so, apparently I've been told that you can pay money to somebody that when you die, they'll give money to somebody else. Now, the Army does this for all kinds of people. Because being in the army is a hazard. So that being said, he comes back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so um, he comes back four months later. I guess his, his service to the army is done. Uh, what happens after that, Mike? After we watch the end of this scene, we go into the last portion of this movie where Josephine asks Will why he doesn't like uh these stories that his father tells. And Will explains that he thinks that his father has had a separate life. You know, these stories have definitely been fabricated and Will has been under the suspicion that there has been another family. And if not another family, he just doesn't want to be a part of their life. So he's made up 
this other life that he's had. And this takes us into the finale of the film where Will is starting to go through and clear out the office of Edward. And he starts to find documents uh, about Spectre, which was a part of these stories from the beginning. And in these documents, he finds actual deeds to land. So Will decides to explore into this uh, subject and, and try to figure out what actually happened with Edward uh, and these deeds, because he really didn't believe a, a lot of these stories. Um, Will ends up finding out that Edward had actually been buying up plots of land in, in, in a real city of Spectre. So this, this mythological city that he had talked about in stories turns out to be real. And Jenny turns out to be a real person. The, the person that played the witch, she played the young girl in Spectre, and is now an, an old widow who teaches piano lessons to young children in this town. And Jenny explains to Will that this life that Edward made up, he doesn't want to fabricate his life, he just wants to exacerbate his life to make it bigger and better than it actually was. And that's where we go into the finale. And uh, we'll stop a little bit there and go into a little bit more storytelling, but I think that's a good place to speak about the stories. Yeah, I wanna touch a little bit on um, the manner in which he came to be able to afford the entire town of Spectre. So to kind of set the scene, after he gets back, he becomes a salesman selling this weird hand thing. It's like one of those uh, model hands you see artists use, but it's got tools in the fingers. At a later scene, you see him like drilling a screw into a door frame with the hand. It's, it's kind of wild. But the way in which he affords this is he, in one of his travels to Texas, he stops by a bank to deposit his check, <laughs> runs into uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, still the poet, of course, who has also left Spectre and is now robbing banks. They, uh, they discover the bank's empty, and uh, Ed Bloom tells uh, Ed tells the poet that the real reason the bank is so poor is because of speculation on Wall Street. So the poet goes off to Wall Street because that's where the real robbery is <laughs> and becomes fabulously wealthy and then is, of course, willing to give uh, Ed some money to buy Spectre. I just really enjoyed that little scene. Which, in keeping with tradition, how the killing inspired Tarantino to make Reservoir Dogs, this was just the opening scene to Reservoir Dogs. Well, I was actually going to say this is the inspiration for the 2008 financial crisis. This was scene for scene inside man. <laughs> <laughs> so during his, uh, first of all, again, zero ramifications for just robbing a bank. Yeah, um, nothing at all <laughs> for either of them. There's a, there's a particular scene when it, I think it was, it's during his, uh, his salesmanship. He says, like, he ran into a, a rainstorm like none other. Mm, mm-hmm. And um, it rained so much that uh, his car was completely submerged on the road. This is the part where I realized that this film is just one giant ad for a 1966 uh, Dodge Charger. Because that thing is watertight. Yeah, it did not yeah. flood a bit. And it will get you away from bank robberies, no problem. Yeah. Um, there is some pretty impressive product placement uh, it kind of comes into play at later stages in the movie and that car can go another product that was definitely placed is insure the meal replacement uh this is a good time to <laughs> pause our podcast and deliver a word from our sponsors dodge and insure insure <laughs> <laughs> just drink half the bottle we'll tell mom you drank it all <laughs> like a rock Sinks to the bottom. Watertight <laughs> like a rock. <laughs> um, um, let's see. I had another point here. Uh, I don't know what you guys made of uh, Helena Bonham Carter playing Jenny as well as the witch. Yeah. And then a little like nod. Uh, at one point, it's like, you know, I'm not a witch or something like that. Was that supposed to be like what they were getting at? Is that because that house kind of looked like the witch's house too? Like, they, is he just mixing those stories? Here's what happened Tim Burton was biased and just wanted Helena Bonham Carter to play every female in the movie. <laughs> and the producer was like, no, she can't play both characters. And he was like, you know, it, it'll be fine. I'll just add a little like nod to uh, her being a witch. She'll just be a witch. She's a witch on the side, she's a side gig, a side witch gig. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a Hollywood accounting kind of thing. Um, they can pay Helena Bottom Carter more for more roles, and since she's romantically involved with Tim Burton, he gets more money, kind of a kickback kind of thing. Um, it's really just a money-making play. I wonder if they have life insurance on each other. Apparently this is a thing. It shouldn't be. <laughs> All right, so just to just to bring this back and recap for our listeners. So when Will Bloom shows up at Jenny's door, pretty much the first thing he asks is, did you have an affair with him? And she does kind of uh, lead us on in such a way to imply that they did. But she kind of f- finishes her story by saying that she loved him, but it was unrequited and he was not interested. So that's, that's an important thing to highlight is that I think this is kind of a turning point for Will when he realizes that his father's stories are embellishments, but not lies. And they're not hiding anything. They're telling a different story. That's fantastic. Uh, excellent point. I agree 100%. You nailed it on the head. That really what it comes down to at the ending here is Will realizes that he's wrong. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a certain amount of like character interplay in that Will can't not take them seriously. He's like a journalist or something. He has to know the truth. But I think he kind of realizes that a fun story matters too. It's a nice story, and I, I love this movie, but like, I just don't get why he was such a dick. I guess they got like him being away and like him not knowing why his dad was away all the time, but like, Will is such an exaggerated asshole. Everyone loves his dad, and he is just over the top angry. Like, to the point they don't talk for three years. His dad never did anything that we got to see that was so awful that would warrant this. You know, I was kind of waiting for maybe a little bit of something that you go, oh, okay. So there was a pretty, like, kind of pivotal moment when um, old Ed is, is, like, on his deathbed, basically, and Will says something along the lines of, like, you know, I don't know who you really are. And uh, for his entire life, he's been hearing the same exaggerated story over and over. You know, he doesn't really know who his dad is. Right. I get it. I just... It seems a little over the top. I get that he has to be. This is this is a minor gripe, I guess. But did you have something you want to say, Mike? Do you want to carry this thread forward? Yeah. So so June is in on a really good point. In the very beginning of this movie, is Tim Burton's really good at establishing that type of relationship in his movies, where he said that on his deathbed. But there's a scene that uh, I, I feel like a lot of people miss, where where Will is walking up the staircase. This is an adult Will. And he's looking at the old photos that start from his childhood and progressively up the staircase work up to his adulthood. You can see like graduations and trophies and whatever. But you can see at the beginning, he looks at his childhood photos and he has a smile on his face that it just comes off of the stories. So when he was a kid, he believed his father's stories. It made him happy. It was was a part of his relationship with his father. And over the years, I feel like these type of stories started to wear him down to a point of resentment where he forgot that childhood bliss of of believing his father's stories and eventually started to resent his father's stories. And as he's going up through this progression of walking up these stairs, he starts to frown and you can see this face starts to droop to graduation. And that's where we, we kick off into the story about him not liking his father. So really what it comes down to is he just started to hear them too much and he stopped believing them because he felt like these were whimsical tales that he was lied to his whole life. Yeah, um, I think to kind of run with that, there's a line that's really important. But Before I, I jump straight to that line, I think you're right in that I think what's going on with Will is at some point he went from thinking these were stories to thinking they were lies. You know, I, I can see how he would be really upset because he feels like he's been lied to his entire life. And no matter how much he asks, no matter how he asks the question, he can't get the truth. And that kind of leads to a confrontation with his dad where he says, I just want to, you to be you. I want you to be the real you. And his dad shouts back, you know, I've been nothing but me since the day I was born. And I think that was um, really interesting because it kind of frames the stories differently in that like these stories aren't lies. His dad is just the sum of these stories. Like, what, what does the truth even matter? And the, uh, the doctor, the family doctor, kind of hits that on the head. Like, at one point he says, like, did he ever tell you the real story of, like, how you were born? And it was just, like, this vanilla story, and he wasn't there. 
and uh, that wouldn't have made for good storytelling. And I think that's when that's the point when when Billy kind of I think it clicks in his head. Yeah. Or Will, excuse me. <laughs> Billy. <laughs> the actor's oh, named Billy. <laughs> character's named Will. That's just lazy. That's like somebody who can't <laughs> remember their character's name. It's like, all right, we're gonna give you Billy. Like, uh, Mike, do you want to carry us through the end here and kind of kind of what happens? We reach the end of this film now, where Will returns home after discovering that his father wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't. Ha- he didn't have a separate life. And when he gets home, the house is empty. Um, obviously something has happened. So he rushes to the hospital to find out what happened to Edward. Uh, Edward had experienced a stroke and is now in the hospital bed. And Will now having this realization that his thoughts about his father were misplaced, um, decides to stay with him for the night, sends his family home. And, and during the scene in the middle of the night, Edward wakes up and having suffered a stroke and is on his deathbed asks Will to tell him the story of his death. And this is the end scene where now Will has to make up this fantastic tale to help his father, who is a storyteller, pass into the next life. And it's it's beautiful, and it's a fantastic ending, and I would like to, you guys to go into it a little bit more. Sure. Do I dare let Shane take this? So... <laughs> <laughs> This ending, like the movie's good, but it is really the ending that leaves you like, oh my God, I love this movie. You know, these are all stories that you go, oh, maybe some are true or aren't. And like, Will takes the mantle as the storyteller of the family now, because it turns out that his dad didn't actually know how he was going to die. or Like, he never actually made that part. And Will tells him how he's going to die. And it is so beautiful because it's like, it's this big elaborate thing and it's fun. And then his dad gets taken to the lake. Why don't you take us with it? Like start from the beginning. I want to hear you lay this whole thing down at the end. Yeah. Pretend Mike is your dying dad. Okay. So I look into Mike's eyes and Mike having a stroke tells me, (laughs) Dad, tell me what happened. I don't know if we can air that. <laughs> I'm leaving it. <laughs> but um, you look into his eyes. He says, "Tell me how I'm gonna die." And so he's he starts with that. All of a sudden, he can start walking, and they they he's like, "We gotta get out of here quick!" And they get in a wheelchair, and these they're rushing down. And the orderlies and all the nurses and doctors start to chase them. And they're like, oh, but uh, mom and Josephine do a distraction. So they throw a cart in front of the nurses, which just throws nurses everywhere and probably hurts people. But they just run off. They get in the, the Dodge Charger, the 66 Dodge Charger built like a rock. And they haul ass where they almost hit a roadblock, but Carl happens to be there and he flings the car out of the way with an old lady in it and they drive to the lake where he found the big fish that ate his wedding ring and all his friends are there in the forest and at this point the tears start to go you're holding them back you're choking them danny devito's there carl's there jenny's there the twins are there and they're all saying goodbye and no one's sad. They're all happy. They take him to the water. And like throughout the movie, Edward Bloom would say that he dries out and he would have to get in the bathtub and he'd hold his breath and he's always swimming, kind of alluding to what comes up with this. And uh, Will lays his dad into the water. Does anyone remember the, the final line that he gives to his wife? Because she's there too at the lake. It was something like my girl or something like that. Yeah. And then uh, this, it's freaking amazing. You just want to cry. And uh, he lays his dad in the water, and his dad turns into a, a big fish and then uh, swims off after giving his wedding ring off. And at this point, I'm full. I'm just bawling. I, I just need to be pet and held and cry. Yeah, I definitely had something in my eye. Um, that kind of wraps up Will's story. Mike, do you want to take us from the end of Will's story into the end of the movie 
Yeah, so at the very end, after this, you know, dramatic story that Will has now fabricated, which he's always been opposed to his, his entire life, um, who has, you know, now done this for his dying father, it goes into reality again, where we see Will and Josephine and Sandra having the funeral for Edward, and we see this this look into reality where these stories they weren't they weren't wrong. We see that these people actually existed. They were just a little bit different than reality. And, and it's beautiful to watch their, you know, love of Edward's life. And they talk about his stories and enjoy each other's company. Um, but Will, you can see that he really comes to terms with that. It's not a bad thing to make a story better than it is. It's not a bad thing to make a fishing story. And that's where the movie ends. Yeah, and I think it's it's fun to see some of these characters. You know, for example, Danny DeVito is there. Um, Carl is there, but he's not 20 feet tall. He's just eight feet tall. You know, the, the conjoined uh, sisters from the Korean War are just identical twins, but they're all there. Um, June, do you have anything you want to add to that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what Tim Burton's driving home is all his stories were fiction, but the main and important points were true. So the people and the relationships were true. Just the the details were exaggerated. Yeah. Shane, I, I don't think you should give Tim Burton the credit for that. <laughs> Tim Burton didn't make the story up. It was based on a novel. <laughs> yeah, so just, just for anyone who's joining a little late, Big Fish is a 2003 American fantasy drama <laughs> based on the 1998 <laughs> novel of the same name by David Wallace. Daniel Wallace. <laughs> Daniel Wallace. Let, let me rephrase that just so it's more clear. Big Fish is a 2003 American fantasy drama film based on the 1998 novel of the same name by Daniel Wallace. Pushed by Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, this has all been ripped off. So yeah, kind of uh, taking the whole movie in, in its you know total form. Do we have any thoughts on it? It tells us through a story and reminds us why we like hearing stories even like in films the liberties that like you know hollywood takes on like based on a true story movies that's what brings us to the theater i think big fish captured that very well yeah it kind of says that sometimes the truth isn't what matters sometimes you know there's more than just well i should say what's factual is not the same as what's true and who knows maybe the 1998 novel of the same name by daniel wallace was actually just a story about fishing yeah <laughs> this was a hollywood uh embellishment about embellishment mike did you have any points you wanted to kind of throw out there as we come home with this movie yeah so this has been this has been the biggest fear about watching this movie like between you and i this is well there's four of us <laughs> just between jack and... shane june quiet yourselves i've honestly uh been afraid of this movie because it is it's been very powerful for me and I feel like this is definitely one of those movies that makes you experience an emotion uh, that makes you feel human. And that's very hard for a film to do in a, in a real way. And this pushed that humanistic emotion of either sadness, happiness, all of it at once that has just meant a, a tremendous amount to me. And it's been fantastic to watch and I've, I've really enjoyed reviewing it. So Great movie, loved it, would recommend. Really an excellent movie, and I think one thing that makes it so good is it hits on so many layers because it is kind of a story about stories, but I feel like anyone who has a complicated relationship with their father or with a parent or has maybe just gone through that at some point, I think it's really easy to identify with this movie. Yeah, like, I wish my dad would All right, so as we kind of bring this podcast home... Um, let's talk a little bit about how the movie did. It had a budget of $70 million and a box office uh, poll of $123 million effectively, so it was pretty successful. Um, well regarded by film critics, uh, Rotten Tomatoes was about a 77%. Um, so it was regarded as good, but not incredible. I We discussed this kind of before starting recording, but uh, the year that this film was uh, would have been looked at for an Oscar, it, it was not even nominated, which is appalling. Um, yeah. 2003. 
I don't think it would have won. I don't think it would have beat out uh, Return of the King. But this was hands down better than Master and Commander. Ah, Jesus, yes. Okay. (laughs) Master and Commander had incredible audio design. (laughs) (laughs) Should have stopped there. Should not have received a nomination over Big Fish. Uh, we will agree that this is a travesty, a travesty that it was not nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Original Score because it was uh, composed by Danny Elfman, another real A-lister. But yeah, it, it did not, to my knowledge, win any awards or accolades. That is crazy. This movie was so good. It is an excellent movie. But maybe that brings us into our next segment, the part where we rate the movies ourselves. So we're working off of the IMDb top 250 list. Right now, Big Fish sits on that list at 248. We only watched three movies, so it can only go one of three places. Um, so to rank it ourselves, June, do you want to start us off? Where does this rank between Big Fish, The Killing, and Touch of Evil? So since we're three movies deep, this is normally where I would like make a joke or whatever, but like hands down, number one movie. And I think it will be for, for quite a while as we progress down this list. Um, I will say the next, you know, the next 247 movies have a lot to live up to. Yeah. Shane, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely gotta say that, like, it's it's nice seeing a real director in Tim Burton, other than those other two no-names and Stanley Kubrick and Orson Welles. <laughs> 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 uh, no, I would definitely put this one, The Tops, you know, then The Killing, and then uh, Touch of Evil. This movie is just, it really attacks your heart, so. I think I agree. I think this, in my book, is the best of the three we've watched and i strongly suspect that this may be our benchmark for good movies or for our best movies for a long time yeah mike what do you think so out of my ranking system here we're going to go a little bit different uh my other ones were seven and the six we're going to give this one an eight out of ten uh definitely going to be in the top five before the killing and way before a touch of evil i'm so confusing Wait, eight out of ten. We got we have at least five, and Big Fish is definitely in those five. And then after that, we have Killing, Touch of Evil. Killing is outweighing Touch of Evil, but it's definitely part of the three. Just rank the damn movie. <laughs> Before we call this a day, just our final question: Do you recommend watching it, June? Absolutely, Shane. You should watch it now. If you haven't watched it now, what are you doing? Mike? Um, watch it and then watch it twice. Uh, I would diverge here and say you're probably okay watching it once, but definitely watch it. All right. So thanks for joining us. This has been Big Fish. Next week, we have the Maltese Falcon, another one of the oldies. We're going to be jumping back in time. Big Fish was a little breath of fresh 21st century air but if you're at all interested in hearing what we think about the Maltese Falcon join us next week